Welcome to Black Health Matters. I'm Daryl Armistead, your host. This episode is a Zoom recording of Howard University group session led by Dr. Clive Callender. More than 25% of the American population have carried it, have dental caries, and they don't do anything about it. Uh, mm-hmm. They talk about the importance of flossing and uh, taking good care of your teeth because they are often a source of infection that is unrecognized. Mm-hmm. And so it's an important aspect uh, of our health that we don't often talk too much about, but we should. What what does caries mean? It means that you have uh, in, in, you have holes in your teeth that are sources of infection. Dental caries, little holes that uh, allow bacteria to get in and cause infections and cause other diseases. Are caries the same as cavities? Yeah. They also had on Facebook regularly now warning women against putting perms in their hair because it's causing cancer, breast cancer, and cervical cancer. So um, I see it a lot on Facebook. So, well, you know, Facebook is not the Bible. So I know, but we, you know, we had brought that article up before to warn blacks women against getting um, perms. Right, but not, uh, that it caused bre- not that it caused breast cancer, though. That's what said cancer, but it, what didn't specify. Oh, so I think that's a, good, that's a good article for us to talk about the next, next time, was that, uh, the, the perms and how they, uh, we talked about it before, but we talked about it again, how they affect you. Uh, they cause a lot of bad things. Of course, how long have uh, we been using perms? We've we been using perms. How long? Since I was in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> That's like long enough, years. <laughs> long enough to give American black women the highest rate of breast cancer in the world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, probably so far. Okay. Um, we're ready, John Buchanan, to start a number of articles that uh, are very interesting. Something going on new every, every day in the world. This is an article that uh, actually we talked about it before, but this is the most recent article that talks about the fact that music uh, improves mental health as much as exercise. And uh, of course, we talk about exercise all the time. We don't uh, often equate the benefit of music to mental health as uh, we talk about exercise, how it's good for your mental health and all that. But we don't often recognize how important it is to have music and uh, how that improves so many things, same things that exercise improves, sleep, self-esteem, and mood, and uh, and uh, talks about board-certified music therapists, and I didn't know there was such a category, uh, but 
you, and most of us on this uh, call are musicians. So uh, it's uh, interesting to see how uh, it is helping our own mental health by involving with this in music. Yeah, Dr. Callan, I have a, a close friend, uh, Victoria, who's a harpist, who is a music therapist at uh, Children's National Medical Center. And uh, so that's that's been her full-time job for, for maybe 10 years or so. It's uh, And <clears throat> she came up to the hospital for my mom after my mom had her stroke. And it was amazing the effect that the music had her playing the harp in the in the hospital room. It was amazing. I mean, you know, we were ready to send her to hospice. And like the next day, right after this therapy, she was in really good spirits and came, bounced back. It was amazing. Yeah, the harp is an interesting instrument because it's uh, not played by that many, but uh, it's a beautiful instrument. I don't. I don't know that many harpers, though. As you mentioned it, Dan, I don't know many. Well, in a lot of ways, a guitar is just a small harp. Well, doesn't sound like one. No. <laughs> if you play it correctly, I mean, if you play it a uh, finger style, the way harp is played, it can sound. It can mimic the sound of a harp very much. Uh, if it's picked, you know, played like rock and roll, yeah, it's not a harp. And played uh, like classical guitar style, finger style, very oh, much yeah. mimic a harp. Yeah, that's a beautiful sound. That and the piano. But the harp seems to be more angelic than anything else. <laughs> piano is a harp in a way. Yeah, yeah. You look at the shape of the inside yeah. of a piano, it's shaped like a harp. Yeah, it is. Sure is. Um, John Buchanan, what was her name again? Victoria, Victoria Payton Weber. Yeah. Okay. She's not the one. We have a harpist that tunes our piano. I was just wondering. That's not her. He knows her too, Carol. Uh, uh, yeah, John Buchanan. What is her name, Carol? She's yeah. very popular. She tunes harps. Yeah, I, I know what you're talking about. I, I see her yeah. face. She plays, uh, she plays at Asbury too. Right. She plays the harp at Ashburn. Uh huh. Uh -huh. One of the few churches that are higher. And she'll go for that. Kim comes to mind. Kim something. Kim Sater. Sater. That's right. Sater. Yeah. Now that we all think of it, how long did it take us? <laughs> <laughs> Is there a type of music that's better for you than others? Whatever music that uh, uh, that you're used to is probably good for you. Whatever, you know, because I think a lot of it goes back to what you grew up with and, and brings brings good memories to you. So whatever music that you, you know, some people like rock and roll, they like all other kinds. Of, I think it depends upon your, your own musical history. But there is one type that the um, medical music therapist said that is detrimental, and that's heavy metal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeff as well. That has also caused illnesses and heart attacks and um, adrenaline. And they said even for children or young adults that listen to that, they have more health 
deficits than other people. So that's one type of music because of the rhythm and the thumping and the beat and et cetera makes it detrimental to uh, one's health. And the volume. And the yeah, volume. It probably makes you deaf as well. Yeah, and some of them commit suicide. Well, on another point, good morning, everyone. Uh, Dr. Callender, um, as a teacher, um, with kids coming from all different backgrounds, and I've always taught them that when you enter the classroom, leave all the things that are not nice outside the door. And I always played uh, Beethoven and Mozart <laughs> all throughout the day, you yeah. know. And um, the trans and and I did it for twenty years. So the transformation that I would see, the change in the kids from when they enter the room and when they sit down to do their warm up and the transformation of their mental state was just outstanding. And so I utilize that a lot. Great. This article is uh, on the higher sense of purpose in life, showing that it's linked to lower mortality risk, which is not surprising to any of us because we all have a purpose. And uh, uh, it implies that those who don't have a purpose have a lower risk of, uh, uh, have a higher risk of death. Uh, and, and of course, this is interesting because they did this study among uh, 13,000 people who are 50 and older. It makes you wonder what would, be, what would the risk be done in younger people, but uh, people with the highest sense of purpose indicated the lowest risk of death with the highest uh, Mortality though had had no sense of purpose, and uh, I guess it's not surprising to us, but it's it's uh, another evidence that uh, purposeful life uh, makes all the difference. You know, you think I think of uh, Carol because she always always giving of herself, and sometimes we forget that it's in giving that you receive. Uh, Pardon your pardon is dying, you're going to eternal life. And so that uh, uh, having a purpose and being a very giving person uh, leads to longevity. Um, Dr. Callender, I yeah. have a friend and um, she noticed that her children, well, particularly this one child that's married with children has no purpose and they're just has succumbed to living this mediocre life. What could she possibly do? She knows they don't have a purpose. They probably know they don't have a purpose. So what is saying you need a purpose in life so you can live longer? What can you do to motivate them to have a purpose? I don't know. Anybody have any thoughts? Because uh, different strokes for different folks. And I don't know what particularly would motivate them if they have no motivation at all. Any, any, any thoughts on the panel? Some happy music. <laughs> you know, it's just like someone that's on drugs and say, you shouldn't be on drugs. Yeah, duh. Like mm -hmm. telling someone you have no purpose in life, so your life is going. I mean, having this knowledge, what can we do with it? Well, I think that uh, what we've already done with it is that most of us have a purpose. And maybe that's the reason we're on this program, because we know we have a purpose. Those who have no purpose 
how do you get them to develop a purpose? It's, uh, I think that's, I think you have to know their history and try to understand why they have no purpose. Uh, I think uh, most of us are surrounded with people who have a purpose. And so understanding why someone does not have a purpose probably is uh, helpful in terms of trying to uh, give, them, give them a purpose. Uh, and uh, I, but I don't know the, the answer to that question. It's a great question, but I don't know the, I personally don't know the answer because I, I, I've had a purpose all my life. And, uh, so. Mm -hmm. and so I, all I do is talk about uh, uh, how pur being purposeful has been beneficial to me, but that uh, is uh, something it's very personal, and I don't, I don't know how to uh, address it. Uh, Dr. Callender, um, in teaching my experience, it's like filling up an empty glass with water. If that glass is empty, you, you, one drop at a time would increase it to the top of the level. So like with my students and people I work with, you start with a small drop and you steady keep encouraging them. It's just like, for one example quickly, it's just like with my own three kids. When they were very small, I kept saying, well, you know you're gonna to have to go to college to make it in this world. The competition is strong. You're gonna to have to make it in college. Now, when they got to junior high, I said, well, you know, that BS is not going to stop you. You got to have a master. And so with my students, I did, um, there's a song that I see you in the future. Okay. So before that song came out, I used to play a game with all your, all your beautiful personality, all your talent. This is what I see you in the future doing. And they would love it. They would love it. And they said, don't forget about me. Don't forget about me. Tell me, Ms. Dorch. Tell me, Ms. Dorch. And so that was just my encouragement to them. One drop at a time. Any other thoughts in terms of addressing Carol's question? I think that's a lot of the parents' responsibility. I'm, I, I think you have to start early. And if you... If you're a person who has a purpose, it kind of rubs off on your children as they grow. And some say that if you, if you haven't done it by the age of nine, it's not going to be done. Right. So that the role of the parents becomes mm -hmm. uh, magnified. Yes. Dr. Counter, I think that doctors and nurses have a high purpose. Yeah, but they, they usually begin that early on in life. Yeah, but so do teachers. Yeah. Don't leave them out. Right. Yeah. 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 And parents. <laughs> um, so what you're doing, you're setting a precedent that's not completely good for us. I'm saying, like teachers used to, I heard them saying, you're not going to be anything but slinging French fries and say, what do you want with your burger fries? Which they lower the esteem of working that having uh, working at McDonald's is nowhere. 
when the world of work is somewhere. Um, so you're saying that someone that chooses to be a mechanic has no um, motivation or something like that. You're that's um, a purpose. What I'm trying to say. Huh? But that's a purpose. Mechanic is a purpose. A purpose or a beautician, but you know what we really use to do is just hold certain positions as um, being successful. You could be a custodian and that's your purpose in life to clean the best way you can. Um, mm -hmm. setting well, up God something. has a purpose for all of us. So the question uh -huh. is, what is God's purpose for you? And uh, that person, that's an individual question that has to be answered by the individual as they are responsive to God. But if they, if they don't believe in God, for example, and they're atheist or uh, agnostic, uh, then uh, often the die is set. And so uh, sometimes an example, uh, your life as an example may be motivating, but sometimes it's not. So the earlier you can help with the development of a purpose, the better off you are. And the, the later you develop it, the uh, the less privileged you are, I think, but. Uh, and also your mental capacity. Um, there are some people who, who, who are not mentally able to perform those higher level jobs and those jobs of flipping hamburgers and custodial work, work is perfect for them. It's perfect for anyone who Feels it's perfect for them because we all That's have we all have different purposes. Yeah. We have different gifts, and we all have to use the gifts as as we are given them. Uh, and, to whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah. And you really never know because I had a classmate back in the '60s who started working at McDonald's flipping hamburgers, and at our 50th class reunion, he's big top executive at McDonald's and he sponsored the whole reunion for us. So, <laughs> <laughs> you never yeah, know. You're right. It's up to you. You know, <laughs> and, all of and I think having a purpose uh, helps you understand that you just do the best that you can do at whatever you're doing. Whatever. Right. And whatever. a lot of times it's exposure and involvement. And as someone said earlier, it starts in your child. And if mom and dad lets you sit all day and watch TV, you know, will they have that purpose? Will they have that drive? But get them away from the TV, expose them to different things, activities, whether it's in school or out of school. Um, I think it's exposure. Well, we've had a good discussion. So uh, moving on to the next, uh, we've talked about intermittent fasting and uh, as a solution to gastroesophageal reflux disease, which is a common problem. And uh, many millions of dollars are spent on medications. Uh, but uh, one, of the, one of the cheapest solutions may be intermittent fasting. Of course, uh, a proton pump inhibitor therapy is probably the most commonly used medication. Uh, but uh, Anyway, they're suggesting that uh, intermittent fasting may be as good as the PPIs, which is the term they use for proton pump inhibitors, which is really, for most people, 
they consider that a treatment of choice for gastroesophageal reflux disease. Uh, and this tries to explain why fewer meals uh, uh, results in uh, improvement in the uh, pH of gastroesophageal reflux disease. Many of you have that on this call. I think it's a common disease. It's not uncommon to find, but most people are on medication for it. I don't know anybody who's used this particular treatment of intermittent fasting to resolve that. Sometimes people, don't people call that giving your GIS track a rest yeah. Take a break. Yeah, 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 that's what we do, say. And uh, that may be part of the reason it's helpful. Yeah, my, my thought on it is about, that would be the opposite thing to do because, you know, when when you're hungry, it seems like the, the digestive juices flow into your stomach and there's no food in there. That seems like it, it could, you know, start eating your stomach. I don't know. <laughs> I, I have it. It's 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 um, it's very uncomfortable sometimes. Um, and I have I take medication for it. Been taking it for for years. Um, but I've also heard that um, the one that I was taking could have a, an effect on your on your kidneys or your liver. So. My my doctor had me uh, stop every you know be on it for two weeks and then off for two weeks. Then my my new doctor took me off of of Prilosec, uh, omeprazole, and uh, put me on a, a different one, Fomotidine, something like that. But um, we'll we'll see. Any other thoughts? Okay, next one. Now, this is an interesting article which talks about the first ever agent to delay type 1 diabetes, as we mentioned before. The type 1 diabetes, when your pancreas does not have insulin, does not, your beta cells do not produce insulin. And so, in that situation, uh, you have to have insulin from outside of the body. Uh, and so they're talking about that there are people who develop type 1 diabetes later on in life and uh, there are ways of doing C-peptide tests and other tests to find out if you're likely to fall into that category and this medication delays apparently the onset of type 1 diabetes and they, they found that uh, taking this medication may delay the onset of diabetes by as long as two years. Uh, and so this is a new drug, uh, but it's only applicable to those people who have not yet developed type one diabetes, but have demonstrated the, the likelihood that they are going to develop type one diabetes.
and often this is teenagers and people who are uh, youngsters. And this is a study that talks about, they compared it to placebo and they, and they identified it. Uh, and see peptide is the test that they use to determine whether your pancreas is gonna, capable of excreting insulin. If you see peptide is zero, then you've got type one diabetes. But if it's low and, and you're likely to develop it, then this is the category that uh, uh, you would fall into. And this is an article that further talks about uh, uh, a sister who had bad diabetes and she got tested and was found to have uh, uh, likelihood of developing it. And of course, this look, look at the cost of the medication. <laughs> that, that would almost cause diabetes, the cost <laughs> of the medication. <laughs> uh, can you imagine? Yeah. And of course, the, the, we talked in her, previous maybe a month or two about the fact that the price of insulin is, is so expensive that many people are rationing uh, insulin. And so uh, we've got many problems. Uh, with paying for the insulin itself, so. So, Really, an absolute is worth a pound of cure, but even this medication is very expensive. So, um, Dr. Counter, what what is the benefit of delaying something like this for a year or two years? I mean, when, when it's going to come anyway, I don't understand. Well, I guess. Uh, you know, insulin is, is something that you have to inject every day. So uh, delaying it for any period of time is probably desirable. And that's all I can say. You also, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, if you can delay it for two years, that would be desirable. But in the long term, I think if you're going to get it anyway, uh, it, it's still problematic, diabetes is diabetes, and it has many negative effects. It's not like it, it completely delays the onset of diabetes. Mm -hmm. It just delays it for a year or two. Hopefully, in the meantime, we find another medication that actually uh, uh, will uh, prevent you from de developing itself. So maybe in the two years, maybe we'll find something else. That's the only thing I can say because uh, if two years from now, now you still have to get diabetes, it's not not a good disease, not a fun disease. You learn how to live with it uh, because you have to, but uh, taking insulin is not fun either. But who can afford to pay for this medication they're talking about? Yeah, John Tatum, you you had diabetes. But well, it, that's a different type of diabetes because 
that's diabetes that's caused by steroids, which is short lasting. Uh, whereas the diabetes that they're talking about is permanent. Uh, so there's some diabetes that, that's more like type two diabetes that's caused by taking medication. As soon as you take stop the medication, the diabetes goes away. And which is different from uh, type one diabetes. Once you got type one, you've got it. And that means your pancreas is not secreting uh, insulin. So type two diabetes is a little different from type one uh, because type two uh, can be overcome often just by exercising and losing weight. Whereas type one, that's not gonna help. Thank you. Now, this is the new dominant uh, uh, BA5 is no longer dominant. That's the, 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 the new dominant uh, BQ and B1. And there's another name for it. We'll see later on. But uh, low variants are, as someone had said long ago, as uh, the virus changes, it uh, get new developing variants. And so it's going, that's what we're seeing again. And this is why it's expected that uh, we will probably wind up getting, uh, having to take a vaccine for coronavirus at least once a year, maybe every six months because of the variations of the of the virus. Dr. Countess and Sylvia, so when um, the COVID vaccine, you know, is, okay, let's say it's developed, then there's another variant and another variant and another variant. How do they, um, well, they, they, you know, you start with the base and then you add something on to deal with the second variant and the third variant. How does that work? Yeah, well, as, as they identify, uh, the uh, genetic anatomy of the uh, change in the virus, they then develop antibodies to those variants. And, and these antibodies are the so-called uh, vaccines that now uh, address or, or cover those variants. So that, so that, so as the they identify the variant, they then try to develop antibodies to the variant. And so the vaccine that you would get would, would be one that has a specific antibodies. Just like the most recent uh, boosters, uh, they were developed, uh, and they are particularly effective against the, uh, uh, the variant that, that, that was previously there. But now we have new variants, so that means down the road, we probably have to have another vaccine for that. Good Lord. Mm. Okay, thank you. But as you think of the flu, that's been happening every year. Mm -hmm. uh, that, are there year. different levels of the, I guess you're saying, because there's different levels of the flu? Well, no, it, it, every year we have a different vaccine for the flu because there's a variant of the flu. So, so that's already been happening every year for us with the flu. Uh, oh. What we're seeing with the coronavirus is the same thing that we've seen with the flu, 
since uh -huh. 1918, which is 100 years ago. Oh, so, I see. So now we're going to see the same thing with the coronavirus. Oh, I see. Okay, thank you. Now, this is an article that talks about the benefit of having full vaccination. As you know, uh, initial vaccination is two, and then we've had three additional boosters since then. And so to be up to date, you'd have to have five, five uh, vaccines, injections. And uh, they're saying that uh, in order to be fully protected, you need to have all of those boosters. And there's evidence that having all of those boosters prepares you better than just having two or three of those. Dr. Cowan, I have a question. Um, when they are creating these variants, uh, I mean, these um, antibodies to the variants, are they working on a on the level of molecules when they try to create these? Yes. Are they? What about? Are they work? Are they also working on? Uh, you know, they're working on molecules. What about atoms and subatomic issues? Are they working there too as well? Yes. Mm. That was Dr. Leto's specialty for his doctor's degree, molecular genetics. Mm -hmm. I yeah. didn't have a hard time even pronouncing it, but. Yeah, well, it, it's uh, interesting how uh, we have attacked the gene and uh, the gene is made up of all of the, uh, all of the uh, proteins. And so they're at that subatomic level where they look at the different proteins and identify the changes in the proteins. That's what the antibodies address, the changes in the proteins. Mm. This is an article I think is very important that uh, cancer diagnoses lag because screenings of have fallen off during the pandemic. And there's evidence that this article shows that breast cancer screenings fallen by 40%, cervical cancer by 36%, colorectal cancer by 45%, uh, which means that uh, people are going to get later diagnosis, get later diagnosis, the disease is less likely to be cured. So screening is one of the most important things we can do. But because of the pandemic, people have stopped screening as much as they used to. Not only is the cancer screening down, but also primary care and non-mental health issues has fallen as well. So it's gonna have an impact on hypertension and diabetes and other things as well. So what the article is, as begging people to go back to their pre-pandemic health practices, uh, get their uh, screenings for cancer as well as other things. Uh, 
because otherwise uh, uh, our lifespan is going to become shorter and shorter. Dr. Callender, screening for cancer, um, you say back to pre-pandemic, involves, let's say what, because now they have so many tele-Zoom with the doctors and- um, Your tele-Zoom does not give you a, a mammogram. Tele-Zoom does not give you a pap smear. Okay. Tele-Zoom does not give you a, a colonoscopy. Colos does not give you the PSA for the men, for prostate cancer. So these are the things that you got to do. Now that, that is not taken care of by tele-anything. Yes, I understand. I was just saying they promote so much of the tele-medical Zoom sessions, and maybe that's what people may be thinking. You know, I, my doctor and I are on Zoom. Yeah, and that's why this article is so important. We've got to get back to what we used to do. And we, we did the Zoom because of the pandemic, and now we have to uh, get beyond that. and. Uh, get back to our healthy, previously healthy practices because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And one of the things that is the uh, Achilles heel of westernized medicine is emphasizing dealing with the disease rather than preventing the disease. So an ounce of prevention is what we ought to be dealing with rather than dealing with disease treatment itself. Okay. Yeah, thank you. This is an <laughs> interesting article. As, as a doctor on flights, uh, I used to have a lot of uh, situations in which I'd be on a flight and they needed a doctor. Uh, now, not as much as it used to. And most of the emergencies are very serious, although there still are some. They are so much better prepared now. They have uh, the defibrillator and uh, they have all other equipment that allows them to be responsive. So that uh, when they make that call as their doctor on, on board, uh, uh, they are very well prepared with uh, medications, equipment that are helpful in terms of resuscitating patients who require resuscitation. Dr. Callender, what is that? Is that syncope or pre Fainting. What is that? Fainting, it means you faint. Oh, fainting, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You lose consciousness temporarily, right. Uh, Dr. Callender, I don't know how many doctors you're gonna find flying on Spirit Airlines. On what? On Spirit Airlines. Oh, I, I don't even know. I've never been on Spirit. It's, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. Well, well, they have a, a nice in-flight toolbox, so, so that's good. And they also have a defibrillator as well, so. Okay. They're well equipped, they're very well equipped. I know they don't have any food. Huh? I know they don't have any food. So yeah. Right. Spirit is one of the cheapest ones you can have. You sit straight up and you have to pay for water. <laughs> really? Wow. Yeah. Spirit is that Greyhound bus in the sky. 
<laughs> it just gets you to your destination. That and Frontier and I can't remember the others, but that's, I mean, that's why it's so cheap. Okay. But I remember Dr. Calder when I was on a flight with my husband, Charles, you know, he, I was sitting next to him and then I saw him sweating profusely and I was like, what's wrong with you? And then, you know, he was like, I don't know, his lip was turning white and everything else. And I called the stewardess and uh, I asked her for some orange juice. And, you know, once, once he had a little orange juice, he got a little better. And I was like, what is wrong? Anyway, he went to his doctor afterwards, but I was wondering, um, you know, what triggered that while we were in flight? I don't even, I don't even know what you would call it. Sound, sound like it was a uh, hypoglycemia. Oh, wow. Is he a diabetic? No. Hmm. No, he's not. Well, but I think he said he had something with his blood pressure medicine. They'd given him a new blood pressure medicine. Oh, I see. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was the only thing they thought may have, may have done it. And they took him off of that and lowered it. But it was surprising. I was like, what is going on with you? I'm sitting next to him. He's sweating profusely and don't know what's going on with his body because he's normally in pretty good shape, pretty good shape health-wise. Mm. Um, well, but you weren't on spirit, were you? <laughs> I, I don't know what we were on. I can't even remember. No, I, I can't remember. I, I can't remember, Mr. Tatum, what we were on. I just remember the incident was so scary. Hmm. You know, being that high in the sky and like, okay, yeah, you know, you know, yeah. just getting sick like that. So I can imagine um, them saying, "Is there a doctor <laughs> on board?" Yeah, if you didn't have to pay for the orange juice. You probably were not. <laughs> right. So I must not have been on spirit. <laughs> I thought this is an interesting article. That they find a nurse practitioner for calling herself Doctor Sarah. Oh yeah, uh, which I thought. Uh, it's interesting that you would actually find somebody for misrepresentation of the truth. Because a nurse practitioner is a nurse practitioner. Uh, they don't have a doctor degree. But uh, I thought it was interesting they would actually find somebody for calling themselves a doctor, although that is uh, unethical. What are your thoughts about that? What what kind of things can a nurse practitioner do legally? Uh, almost everything that a doctor can do, uh, including writing prescriptions. So especially in D.C. because they have a uh, they have a license to practice medicine in D.C., uh, but they're just not doctors. But they have they have a board and they have everything else. But just they just are not uh, doctors. But they can do almost everything else. And and, and the, the reason is because the, there's a still a shortage of doctors. And so nurse practitioners are very necessary. I know lots of times when I call for an appointment uh, at my doctor. They will say the doctor's not available, but would you like to see a nurse practitioner? Yeah, so. becoming more common. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And as the uh, shortage increases, it becomes even more common. Is that cheaper? I mean, to get in the degree, a nurse practitioner, doesn't yes. it cost less money than a doctor? Yes. Okay. But now a lot of nurses will get a uh, doctorate because you can get a doctorate in nurses. So most people are going to get that doctorate, but a nurse practitioner is not a doctor. So you, you I, I have a friend who's a doctor, but he's a nurse. And I, 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 that's, that's different because uh, a nurse can get a doctorate and uh, a nurse can go on and become a physician. So it's a question of whether the nurse is, is an actual physician or has a doctorate, because there's a, a doctorate in nursing degree. So you, you, you can't call someone that, is, that has a doctorate in nursing, you can't call them doctor? Yes, you can. If you oh. have a doctorate, yes. Okay. Yeah, you just have to have the doctorate, that's all. Just like a PhD is a doctor. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if you have a doctorate, yeah, you can be called doctor. Yeah, now uh, that fine was exorbitant. Um, but I guess the judge- You mean $200? That's not exorbitant. I thought it was 20000 23000 Oh, that's that's exorbitant. I agree. Yeah, but I, I just think they, they, I guess they're trying to make a point. I guess that you should not, uh, uh, yeah, twenty thousand. You should not mislabel yourself. She's not a doctor, so yeah. Man, that twenty thousand. She could have gone to medical school. <laughs> not really. Not really. Not really. Medical school is about sixty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Now this is something that uh, we are dealing with: uh, uh, opioid crisis, and I think we, it's getting worse and worse. And of course, since the advent of fentanyl, well, fentanyl has always been around, but since the utilization of fentanyl, which is an anesthetic. Uh, opioid addiction and death are becoming much more common than ever before. 546,000 people died from opioid overdoses. That's awesome. And we've seen so many people dying from fentanyl. It wasn't bad enough for the heroin and cocaine, but now that fentanyl Increases the death sentence. Mm -hmm. 180 Dr. people dying every day from opioids. Dr. Gallen, I have a question about this issue. Um, the overdoses, are they caused by um, the improper amount of the, the drug that the people take? Any amount of fentanyl is improper amount. Those, um, Repeat that. I'm sorry. I'm any any amount of fentanyl is an improper amount. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what you're saying is fentanyl has no medical purpose. Oh, it does have a medical purpose. It puts you to sleep. But you, that's under an anesthesiologist's care. Mm -hmm. So you use the proper instruments. And so therefore, under medical care, uh, there's a role for fentanyl, but not out in the street. Uh, fentanyl is used to put you to sleep and you monitor the patient and you intubate the patient and all of that stuff. But using it uh, on the street is something else. And that's why uh, they talked about fentanyl test strips now to test the drug to see if there's any fentanyl in it. If it's fentanyl in it, then it's likely to kill you. Because fentanyl is not a drug that, uh, not like heroin and cocaine, that uh, it, 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 the proper amount may be a problem. But for fentanyl, uh, uh, it, it's not appropriate. So it's likely to kill you. Of course, it, it also may make you feel good before you die, but hmm. you're likely not to wake up. The other point, Doc, it's highly addictive. You know, uh, people who, who try it once are hooked and uh, they can't stop doing it. Same thing with, with co cocaine. But a lot less than with fentanyl. With well, the difference is it doesn't kill you. Cocaine doesn't kill you like fentanyl does. They, so they uh, have the doses uh, an issue, whereas with fentanyl. They're, they're, they're putting fentanyl on everything. Now. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Putting it on K2, they're putting it on marijuana, they're putting it on the crack, they're putting it on powder cocaine, they're putting it in heroin. And as soon yeah. as they, they, they do that and you try it, you have to keep coming back. So they, it's, it's a horrible syndrome. Horrible. Yeah. What can we do? Because the problem is that when kids go to parties, you never know what they're gonna put in the in the in the, the drug they're gonna give you. And you have you just have to carry that antidote around with you. Naloxone. And I think this is a, a before fentanyl test strips were illegal. Uh, and so now there's an effort to distribute fentanyl test strips. Since any amount of it is, is, uh, is not appropriate. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it only costs a dollar for a test, so it's something that's easy to make possible. I'm sure all of us have had some experience with somebody who's died from overdose. Um, and most of those people who die are relatively young ages. But this has been the scourge of our 
of our existence. Of course, COVID is pretty powerful, but opioids are approaching that. Any of you not know someone who's died from an opioid overdose? My son. No. My daughter. Well, this is an article that talks about uh, sleep aids and how food can be a sleep aid. Melatonin, I think, is overemphasized in terms of its role in helping you sleep, although it's a natural hormone that's produced. This talks about magnesium and uh, the fact that it affects so many different enzymes and that it can also allow you to sleep well at night. Most people don't know much about magnesium, but in every enzymatic process in your body uh, pretty much uses magnesium. And muscle relaxation of nerve function is helped by magnesium. Dr. Calendar, what's the dosage for magnesium? Do you, I mean, you, I see the pills in the in the drugstore. I mean, I mean, how many milligrams or how often uh, you should take it or before yeah, bed? Well, well, I think most people who take it take it because they're deficient in magnesium. So you can get it. Uh, uh, and if you are deficient in magnesium, then you need to be on magnesium. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, the, the 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 disease which makes you problematic for magnesium is uh, kidney disease uh, because uh, uh, the kidney eliminates magnesium. Mm. And uh, if the kidney is not working, then uh, hypermagnesemia hyper is possible. Uh, but they identify the, the foods that are high in magnesium, which are good for you, like almond, spinach, Avocado, peanut butter, and also bananas. Uh, so that uh, it's probably safe to take that. Uh, the dose they have here is 300 to 350 milligrams daily. But that uh, is probably only necessary if you have a deficiency in uh, magnesium. Dr. Cloud. Yes. Um, there's so many different types of magnesium. There's uh, magnesium glycinate, magnesium oxide, and all those. Which one is best for me? The one that works for you. Yeah, I think uh, uh, I think in my my idea magnesium is better for sleep than melatonin. But uh, I think the product that gives you the least side effects is the one that's best for you. Because all of the magnesium products have some side effects. Uh, the oxide may cause diarrhea and other things. And such, uh, yeah, so that uh, the magnesium that you take that gives you the fewest side effects is the magnesium that's better for you. Thank you. And have you tried melatonin to sleep? 
Yeah, it works for some people. Some people it doesn't. My husband uses it. Now this is an article that uh, is the scourge of the of United States. Now we have more maternal and neonatal mortality than any other country in the world. And uh, most recently, they looked at our preterm birth rates and found that we were among the worst in the world, giving us a score of D plus, which is lower than the C minus we had before. <laughs> so we could at least afford it. This affects the uh, native and black mothers more so than any other group. Native Americans, black mothers suffer more than anybody else. Why is the richest country in the world associated with such situations? Something that we've got to work at harder. Because uh, they, what is important is that when women are pregnant, they, they get checked by doctors so they can be followed and prevent going to preterm labor. And you see, uh, only four states saw a decrease in preterm births. That's not good out of 50, huh? What can we do about it? We've been talking about it for at least 10 years now. Dr. Callender, do you think the fact that a lot of women are having children older has anything to do with it? I don't know, but I, I, I think it's more related to them uh, not being followed by the doctors early. I'm not sure whether it's older or not. Older mm -hmm. mothers is the answer. Mm -hmm. I mean, for something to be that uh, dramatic, mm -hmm. I think it has to be more than just, just older women. But I don't know the answer, but that's something to look into. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's, 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 it's just been going on too long for us mm -hmm. to be accepting of it. Now this says, this article says that Asian women are having children older. I don't know about uh, Native Americans or African Americans. Mm -hmm. That's, and I think we need to look into it and find out. Mm -hmm. Because it's, uh, it's not good. Dr. Callender, if I would um, just take a wild guess about African-American women, I would probably guess that theirs is very low as well. I mean, very, very low. It's very high. Yeah, very high. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I think some of it may be 
caused by the coronavirus and people not going to the doctor, the pregnant women not going to the doctor as often as they should. But it's, 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 it's avoidable. And so if there's any place in the, in the world we should not have this problem, it's here in the United States. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that problem about uh, preterm birth and maternal mortalities? Well, anyway, the next article is uh, hard to believe that uh, we have come so far that we have twins born from embryos frozen 30 years ago. Hard to believe. Yeah. Almost inconceivable. But that's the nature of uh, science today, huh? Mm -hmm. What do you think about it? Yeah. This is mm. good for those people who want to wait until they're ready to have children. 30 years? <laughs> That's a long way. 30 years? Yeah. <laughs> That's a long way. Wow. Mm. Mm. That knocks my theory of age out the window, though, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, that's amazing. It's amazing with science. Is, it's frightening with, with science, what, what we can do. Mm -hmm. Reminds you again of... Uh, God's observation at, at the Tower of Babel <laughs> in terms of what humans are prepared to do. <laughs> wow. um, I didn't read very well. Um, whose embryos were they? Theirs. Sorry? I don't know whether they were theirs. It couldn't have been theirs. No, no, you mean, what are you asking? When did the embryos came from? Yeah. I don't know. I don't, all it says is that it was on embryo donation. I mean, they don't, uh, they don't identify. I don't think they are allowed to identify who was the donor. Well, if it's a donation, it means it wasn't theirs. Right. Yeah. Because this was in the Washington Post, but I, you know, scanned over it, but I kept thinking, where are they getting them from? Oh, Ned says their donor parents are an anonymous married couple. That's what I thought, anonymous donor. That's where they, I think when you donate, I think they have a yeah, pledge have of anonymity. Yeah, you have to. Would have been something if they were black twins, though. <laughs> that would have been nice. <laughs> well, anyway, it's interesting what we can do now. Uh, the question is, should we be doing some of these things that we can do? In terms of... Uh, Exercise, you know, there's the people who do all the exercise on weekends, and there are people who do the exercise every day. 
which is better. And I think most of the evidence is that it doesn't matter. In other words, if you do 150 minutes of exercise on the weekend, or whether you do it every day, uh, it apparently doesn't matter. The, the positive benefits are equal. <clears throat> so I don't know which category you fall into, whether you do it on weekends or whether you do it every day. Seems like it's easier to do it every day. But, but that depends on your, your lifestyle. But it seems that these studies indicate that as long as you get the, the time in, it works. Whether you do it on weekends or whether you do it every day. So, mm -hmm. so it's up to you, whatever, whatever way you want to do it. You need to get the exercise. And if you combine it with weightlifting, it makes it even more ideal. In some ways, this article is, uh, is deceptive because it talks about five tips to stave off dementia as you age. It talks about uh, taking care of your, your blood pressure, taking care of exercising, avoiding smoking and drinking and uh, all those things. And I think it's, it seems like uh, uh, this is helpful, but uh, to, to, to actually identify this as the five risk factors that actually prevent dementia is, is, is really saying a lot. And I'm not sure that the data really validated. Although I would say that it's, it's helpful, but to say that uh, physical activity alone, but they're not saying they're saying oh, these five things will help will help delay dementia or avoid dementia. But I, I just uh, uh, am not uh, convinced that uh, we can say if you do this, you will not get different dementia. Mm -hmm. I, I think it it curbs dementia risk. I think it's better. Uh, taking the right diet, yeah. Okay, exercise appropriately, taking the right diet, yeah, helps, right? Dr. Callender, uh, on the group session in the past, we have talked about the mental exercises that help. Well, I think they talk about that later on too, as well, because you're right, mental exercises play a role as well. Mm -hmm. Controlling the blood pressure plays a role. Yeah. Smoking, we know, puts you at a higher risk for everything. <laughs> mm Heavy -hmm. drinking puts you at a high risk for everything, including dementia. Now they, they don't, and at the bottom line, Bottom line is that all of those things together contribute to, uh, to decreasing the likelihood of dementia. Uh, but, uh, and this talks about the fact that there's some genetic predispositions uh, that make you more likely to develop dementia. 
to mention. But that, I think uh, saying that they could reduce the risk of dementia is a good idea. The fact that they don't mention the uh, uh, meditation, other mental exercises, uh, uh, I'm surprised that they don't mention that, they don't. Any comment about the, that article? Any other comments about that? Article? Remember the uh, uh, article we, we discussed before going away said that uh, dementia was decreasing over time. Uh, anyway, I think it's, it's accurate to say that those factors uh, reduce the likelihood of developing dementia, but they don't eliminate its possibility. Well, this leads us right into the next article because um, cutting down on stress probably reduces um, the onset of dementia. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that, that's why uh, uh, mental gymnastics as well as uh, meditation uh, play a role because they uh, keep your stress levels, at the, as they would call it, at the management manageable level. And then this, uh, they talk about slowing your breathing, the yoga impact among a lot of things. And there's been much said about that more now than in the past. Muscle relaxation strategies. And then of course, mindfulness, meditation, yoga, work. There's little, all, all of the evidence now is clear that these three work, as well as medication. Uh, exercise, we know well, helps. There's interesting, journaling your emotions, which is an interesting way of doing it to uh, mm -hmm. write about what you're going through as a beneficial effect. Then a good laugh. It's always good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they say laughing is the best method. Yeah, and of course, Lucy, they don't uh, mention music, but here again, it's uh, talked about that. music is also beneficial. And then the practice of all those things consistently allows for de-stressing, which is easier said than done, but uh, uh, something that you can work at. Since we're all stressed, it's all uh, a matter of how you choose to de-stress. Any thoughts on, on, on this? If not, the, this article talks about lab-grown meat. <laughs> Since we talked about the processing of meat, I'm going now to lab-grown meat for human consumption. <laughs> of course, this only applies to chicken products. <laughs> well, getting closer to the market, it's not marketed yet, but it's, it's, it's likely to appear sometime in the future. <laughs> 
it's interesting. Uh, the way uh, scientific knowledge is taking us into all areas. And I think it becomes even more and more important not to deal with whether we can do it, but rather whether we should do it. That's the question which uh, remains to be addressed. The ethical issues relating to whether or not we should do some of the things that we can do. When this becomes popular, I guess I'll become a vegetarian. <laughs> well, being a vegetarian is helpful. It's, it's good anyway. So. To me, it all depends on how it tastes. <laughs> I'm not willing to check it out and see. Well, well we, we're a little ways away from that, yet, but it's, it's coming. There was a movie back in the 70s, Soyant Green. Yeah, that. yeah, I remember that. Yeah. When I when I first heard about this, that's the first thing that I thought of. Yeah. And there and there are more of more older people now. So that might be that's another reason why it came to my mind. And that was uh Edward G. Robinson's last movie. Yeah. Okay, what's the next article? Oh, yes, yeah. Omicron still driving COVID surges and worries. Uh, and of course, we got even more to come on this. So that while we talk about COVID being over, it's still here. It's still killing people. But, you know, in, in a positive way, 80% of the population is vaccinated. You can look at that positive way. Say only 20% is not vaccinated. So that's better than the way it was. So we've come a long way, but we still should be closer to 100% if we can. But. And hospitals are being packed with COVID and RSV and uh, the flu. Dr. Calvin, Mary Ellen is going to participate in an RSV study. Oh, okay. What is it, what is the study? It's it's supposed to um uh it's supposed to be studying um the uh vaccine they got a they think they got a a vaccine that may be helpful oh i see okay right. and we don't have one so we need one desperately uh -huh. yeah this is Tony Fauci's last year mm -hmm. And uh, he's had an incredible uh, 
50 years of work. Uh -huh. Tremendous job in his time. Then much criticized, but uh, also much applauded. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I, I'm going to miss him. Well, we still don't have a director of the NIH, so we'll have two big positions we're missing. Right, his wife is a nurse. But he's, uh, he's done a lot, he's done a tremendous amount. We've reached more than uh, a million Americans have died from COVID, reached that number. Well, it's uh, a new day. Dr. Johnson is going to be the new person. So it's interesting how things have evolved over time. Well, we've we lived through an interesting era. Trump Fauci era. <laughs> but you know, you may wonder why Francis Collins has not been, re been his position has not been replaced. But I guess it takes time to replace him and it's gonna take time to replace Tony Fauci. This is the new COVID variant. <laughs> uh, XBB. Yeah. It's not fully here yet, but it's on the way. And the question will be, uh, will the boosters protect us against XBB? And that time will have to tell us. Hey, Dr. Kellner, here's a new variant, but so many people now are just not wearing any kind of masks. I mean, everywhere I go, I'm like, there are more maskless people than those with masks. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree. And that's uh, kind of frightening, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So it's going to be a long winter, maybe. And the question, the question really is, how protective are our boosters for the, the new variants? They'll have to study it and find out. It'd be nice if, uh, if our uh, bivalent vaccines will be adequate for it, but we just have to wait and see.
So I have a question for Perlene. She's on the line. I don't know if she can hear, but my question would be for her is when the people come to the clinic, how do they uh, screen them for um, the COVID virus other than checking their temperature? This is this is a an article that that, that uh, is ever important is to keep the colleagues out of investigating the COVID origin. What he's saying is that uh, Chinese uh, are very defensive, mm -hmm. and uh, if we go and ask them the questions without political uh, overtones, you might get an honest answer. If not. Uh, they'll get no answer or uh, they won't tell the truth. So he said that it's important for us to have an open mind when we're going and, and, and be objective about it rather than subjective. So time will tell. It's going to be interesting uh, because. Uh, we still don't know the answer. No man we have it. We continue to take a political approach. Fentanyl scourge is seen everywhere, not only on the streets of Los Angeles, but on the streets of DC, Maryland, all over the world, all over the country. It's amazing. How, how wide ranging the homeless problem is. And uh, they have fentanyl highs as well as others. So. And for many, that, that sleep uh, is permanent. Yeah, you know, two thousand homeless people died in the city in Los Angeles. Crazy. Sad. Well, it's a it's a it's an interesting problem, but the problem of homelessness uh, is an enormous problem as well, and uh, mental illness in the Homeless is, is an additional problem as well. 51% had mental illness. Wow. 46 percent substances. Do we see that as much in Maryland? I think we see an uh, incredible amount in DC. You know. Are you as conscious of it in, in Maryland? Shane MD's daughter, what's that audio? Uh, I see a lot of panhandling, but I don't see them just sleeping on the streets like you do in DC. Well, it's uh, sad, very sad. Mm -hmm. I know I'm familiar with um, someone, I've had students that were homeless and in 
Prince George's County, they had apartments which you wouldn't know that they would be in. And they had security. But that's where I would see um, some of the homeless in actual apartments that um, Prince George's County's government is paying for. And that's where it go. But as far as sleeping on the streets, like in DC, they have 10 villages in DC where the government gives them tents and et cetera. So I don't know each, and they also have apartments and et cetera for DC. Right. So there is, you know, but I see more people sleeping out on the streets in DC because some of them say they refuse to go into the facilities because of the crime and the diseases that are taking place in there. They would rather sleep out on the streets on the inside of the facilities. Yep, that's 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 it. Now, this is the article that talks about uh, the increased risk of cardiovascular disease and death in middle age for people who like sugar, who like. Uh, and, white bread, low and fresh fruits, <clears throat> vegetables. So, so if we stuck to vegetables and fruits, we'd be okay. But uh, the sugar sweetened beverages uh, were thought to be as bad as the cigarettes, especially for the middle-aged, of course, uh, some of you are seniors, so. But uh, diet is uh, one of the better ways of, of living to an old age and eating the right food. And those sugar addicts and salt addicts are, uh, and many of us are among them. It, it strains the uh, cardiovascular system. And uh, the question is uh, uh, how much exercise and how much uh, weightlifting can overcome some of our dietary indiscretions? That's the question. And the other question is should they? Should we just eat more healthy and live longer? And it's always interesting to hear some of these uh, octogenarians, non-genarians, and a hundred-year-old people who, who also have some of these habits that still live to old age. Black tea, talk about how black tea uh, helps your health later in life. Uh, it's interesting, we've also talked recently, not only about black tea, but uh, about coffee, but uh, this article is about how black tea is uh, good for you later. Many of you drink black tea? I do. Green tea. Yuck. Green tea as well. Apples, nuts, citrus fruit, berries, and more have the, the flavonoids. Black and green tea. 
So regular tea is out, huh? No, drinking black tea and green tea is good. No, I mean just regular tea, not black or green. Oh, it just well, it doesn't say anything about tea. Except it talks specifically about black and green tea. It doesn't doesn't say anything about just tea. <laughs> uh, and it looks like uh, these are the ones that are most helpful. Mm. I saw an article recently about how uh, grapes are so good for you. We've talked long about the uh, berries, apples. So black tea was the study's main cause of flavonoids. Well, many of you drink a lot of the flavonoids, but don't drink black tea. Well, I think many of us do. What is interesting is that dark chocolate is also a rich source of flavonoids, but it's also a source of sugar. Now, this is probably one of the last articles, but this is an article that talks about more vaccinated people dying of COVID as fewer get booster shots. For the first time, the majority of people dying from COVID have been vaccinated. That's the first article that has identified 58% of COVID deaths in August were related to people who had been vaccinated. And one of the things that is even more frightening uh, it's not only that uh, uh, dying from uh, COVID now, even though they're vaccinated, but also the group of people who are dying has been a source of concern. Because first it was thought that, well, it's well known that the elderly, who was the group that uh, died more from COVID. But with the elderly population being boosted, I think the next article uh, actually shows that, uh, that this is interesting that one in 20 people have never had the virus, only one in 20. It's interesting. Yeah. Let's go to the next article, which I think uh, shows that, uh, well, I think uh, Dowley brought this up uh, last meeting that uh, seasonal uh, depression that occurs with the uh, daylight saving time uh, is, is resulting in so many people feeling 
seasonally depressed with the with the winter coming and the dark wind, dark weather. That mood is uh, depressed, and so this is important to uh, uh, twenty-five percent of negative impact. And so that this is still an issue of daylight saving times is uh, leading to seasonal affective disorder. And uh, that's something that uh, we'd like to avoid, but uh, however, politically speaking, that has not been the case. Dr. Calendar, yeah. I, think, I think the last article tie into the one that we were talking about, purpose. How so? Well, you know, how you feel inside. Okay, I know the season may have an impact, but it goes back to having a purpose. Uh, if you have a purpose, you're driven towards that purpose. And uh, it affects your well-being. No matter what season you're in. Okay. That's my belief. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, I've got a comment about this too. Um, okay. Depression increases during holiday periods, particularly Christmas. There's a lot of pressure on Christmas uh, financially to come up with the money for gifts, um, to participate in holiday activities. There's a, there's a lot of stress uh, surrounding Christmas. And, uh, just a brief history about how we celebrate Christmas as we do. It really comes from the Feast of Saturnalia. It's a pagan holiday where you worship the god Saturn by gift giving and feasting. And so uh, there's, there's nothing biblical about exchanging gifts for Christmas. It all comes from the pagan celebration of Saturnalia. So I know it's a habit, people love to do it, but it's not really, it's, uh, it's increasing anxiety, depression, and stress. Okay. Um, it's after 10.30, so we better move along. Uh, this is, uh, uh, now I, let's go to the, 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 the one after this one. The one after this one. The next one. Because, uh, yeah, this is a, an article that points out that the pandemic is deadlier for the middle age than the first. Um, first, the, we felt the elderly group was the one most hardly hit, over 65. But uh, more recently, uh, it's the uh, middle age group that has been associated with higher death rates, an age between 25 and 54, which is kind of shopping, shocking. And they kind of say that the reason for this is that uh, the elderly group now is uh, almost 90% of them are uh, vaccinated. And uh, the group in the middle age group, 25 to 54, uh, aren't as uh, uh, profoundly vaccinated as they are. And so that they are surprised to find that the biggest increase in mortality was in the middle-aged group. Uh, and that's a group that we felt was uh, protected. 
but uh, apparently uh, it's not. And so uh, this is your children and uh, yeah, so uh, as you, we talk about the maskless groups, uh, we need to remind them that uh, they should be fully vaccinated um, if they can be. So, and, and especially since the death rate of COVID is still, still there. Mm -hmm. But the more fully vaccinated you are, the better off you are. Any comment about this one? I think uh, this should be the last one because it's almost 10.45. I, I agree with you that, that we older folk have paid attention and, and gotten our shots where the younger people, a lot of them don't think they need them or they wait later. Yeah. <laughs>